Welcome to My Life Chassidus Applied, episode 267. We're coming literally from the 25th year of Gimel Tammuz yesterday, which we discussed at length last week. But the power of that day, as we discussed, should remain with us as a source of inspiration. Though it's a painful day and it's a confusing day, but above all, as we discussed last special last week's special edition it's about inspiring and motivating which was the way that ever directed and guided us and educated and empowered us to take a day like that and say what have we not done yet to bring the gula and therefore to eliminate all the negative effects at least on the revealed level of gimel tamas so now we're in dalat tamas going into the week of pashas chukas and I discussed last week as well the connection to Chukas to this day. Chukas, of course, Zeis Chukas Ateda. Its theme is, its primary theme, the name of the chapter. This is the Chukah of Teda. This is the law of Teda and referring to Pora Aduma. As the Medrash says, whenever it says Zeis, Zeis means Marabed This is it, it's the God pointed because there was something that was not clear and Moshe needed more than just regular instruction. The point, what was it? So when he, when the Ebrish to Hashem was showing Moshe Rabbeinu all the different impurities and how you purify from them, then when it came to Tumas Mes, meaning the impurity connected to death, Moshe Rabbeinu began to tremble. The Medrash says, his face became ashen, green, yellow, different uh, interpretations of what that means, but he was disturbed. And he said, How will this impurity of death be purified? And that's why God responded, Here, let me show you. And directed and showed him the Paraduma, the red heifer, that when you'll bring an offering of the red heifer, and you'll take its ash, it's actually not an offering in the conventional sense, you take the ashes from the, that remain on the altar. Oh, where that, it's not actually the altar, it was done. The red heifer was brought outside of the machna, so it wasn't on any of the altars. I say altar, I meant to say whatever was used to burn that red heifer. Then you take the ash and you mix it with mayim chayim, living water, and that will be sprayed upon the person who's impure, and that will purify them. So, of course, the big question is, what was disturbing Moshe Rabbeinu? He, God gives, God takes, and God gives, just as God allows for the impurity to come into play, also gives us the ways to purify him. And, and this was the chapter where he was hearing from Hashem and God all the different ways of purification. Why suddenly by the pure impurity of death, more than all others, he's wondering and he's he's disturbed how that will be purified. So many of us remember, and I remember vividly, the Sikh that Rebbe said, 30 days, the Shleshim, after the Rebbe said, Chaim Mushkas, Stalkus, in Chov Beishvat, and the Rebbe was speaking, of course, very personally, it was Pasha Pora. This Pasha is read twice a year. It's read in the regular order as we're reading this week. But it's also read in the four chap- special chapters that are added between in the period and other leading to Pesach. So you have Pasha Shkolen, and you have Pasha Zochel, the Shabbos before Purim, Pasha Pora, and then Pasha Sachedish. So that was the week in the Shleshim of the Rebetzin after Chavvei Shvat that was read that chapter. And the Rebbe asked the question, what disturbed him so? And Moshe Rabbeinu of all people was Chochmet the Gdusha, Chochmet the Atzilus, wisdom. 
personified wisdom, knew the highest levels of understanding. So he knew all the explanations that death, even though death is painful, it's only on the external level because the soul continues on. Every descent brings an ascent. So what disturbed him so? And the Rebbe said very simply, because death, emotionally, it tears your heart. So all the explanations in the world are not enough to console Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe empathized with the pain of death, the disconnect, even for one moment, when there's a disconnect between soul and body, between alakus, with godliness, with this material world. So in some way, it's a rift and a schism in the atamat veikim b'ashem alakechem chayim kulchem ayem. In that connection and that cleaving and that connection that allows this life force to vivify and energize the body, even one second. And that's what bothered him, that emotional pain. And that's why Hashem had to come in and intervene, so to speak. Had to bring in a whole new picture, something that he would not have done on his own. Here's the way. Clearly the Rebbe was speaking then about himself, that when you have that broken heart and emotional anguish over such a disconnect, all the mind in the world is not going to help. How will that be purified? How will that be redeemed? So what is the answer for Aduma? What does it respond? How does that resolve, resolve the issue? Taking ash and water. So it's true. It's a chukah. Chukah chakakti. gezarti. Means it's a super rational mitzvah. As Rashi brings, that this is the mitzvah that, the Jew, that Jews will be Will be uh, will be criticized for embracing something that doesn't have any logical sense, and yet Chassidus does come to explain. And Kutetera in this week's parsha, Chukas the Alter Rebbe explains because fire and water, the ash, the ash that came from burning the red heifer, and mixing with water, fire and water are the two movements, the two central tracks upon which the entire Torah is built. Positive and negative. Chesed and Gvura. Rotsay and Shuv, as he says. Everything is about yearning and integration. Tension and resolution. Life itself is driven by Rotsay and Shuv. The heartbeat, the breath, contraction, expansion. Exhale, inhale. So when you want to correct the separation of life from the Neshama, into the body, you need to reintroduce the Rotsi Yashuv, which is the very pulse of life, the pulsating life that continues to give energy from a higher source into the lower entities. As Chesidus explains, which is the vision of Yecheskel, but it means a lot more than that. It means the energy, the energy of existence is constantly being renewed, Rotsi Yashuv, a dual action, literally like the heartbeat, like the breath. And therefore, in Navedis Hashem, when a person experiences a form of death, which means something is numb, something is not alive, or not alive properly, not vibrant, the way you reintroduce vibrancy is what do you do? You exercise the pulse, the heart, to get it going again. In Naveda, that means the yearning for something greater and return and integrating within us. So obviously, the full sense of life Eternal life will be returned after the Tchis HaMesim. But in Aveda, even when we're in a situation where we're still not in a Gula Mitzvah Vashlema and Tchis HaMesim, we still can bring life back to our lives by having that constant Rotsi Beshuv, tension and resolution, 
that is the source of all life. So spiritually speaking, it means that every person, psychologically speaking, has to have something they aspire to, some angst, something you yearn for, some rotze. And then you need that to be internalized. And it's a constant dance back and forth. So that's a connection directly to the discussion of Gimel Tammuz, all forms of death, all passing, anything, but including, of course, in relating to us, Gimel Tammuz. If you want to reconnect to the Rebbe, because there's the concealment of Gimel Tammuz, the way to do it is to yearn for everything the Rebbe stands for, everything the Rebbe teaches, everything the Rebbe guided us in, and internalize it in your life by actualizing it. So that actually is the tikkun, is the repair of Gimel Tammuz itself, because it reintroduces and re-energizes our connection to the Rebbe and everything the Rebbe stands for in his teachings, and especially regarding Geula, in doing everything possible to transform our environments and introduce the Aleph, the unity of Hashem, of Hashem Achad, in Geula. So whatever we do, should we should sense the divine purpose within it. That's what we do with Ratzay Veshuv. So if we remain complacent and say, you know what, okay, it's a sad day or life is like what it is, the more things change, the more they stay the same, that type of cynical attitude, that's not a Ratzay Veshuv life. A Ratzay Veshuv life means that every morning, every moment, like a heartbeat, not one moment passes that you need a heartbeat. You need to constantly contract, constantly expand, constantly reach for a new goal, internalize it, ground it, and then go for the next goal. A constant process. That's what keeps our connection alive, and that's what makes Gimel Tammuz turning it into a vibrant experience. So Chukas is like the Tikkun. Magdim Rafula Maka, that year, 25 years ago, Sunday, Gimel Tammuz was the first day. Mitzvah Shabbos Gimel Tammuz was the Mitzvah Shabbos was the first day of Chukas. Like it says about the Alter Rebbe, whose Istalkus was on Mitzvah Shabbos, Chavdala Tevis. Mitzvah Shabbos, Pasha Shmeis, meaning the eve, the beginning of the first day of Pasha Ve'era. And the Rebbe explains how that statement, which the Tzemach Tzedek writes in describing the Estalkus, is both are connected, Shmois and Ve'era. And here too, Kedach was Mitzvah Shabbos, Pasha Kedach. What did Kedach do? He challenged the very concept of a Rebbe, of a Moshe Rabbeinu. And what does Chukas do? Chukas repairs the rift, the split. Until we ultimately, through our work, and we do our part, in our yearning and our internalizing, then we have the ability to ultimately merit to see it in full sense with our own eyes, reunited and reconnected, where the world itself will be realigned with the, its creator, with Hashem. And Mola Ares Deis Hashem Kemaim Neyam Hashem Hashem all the verses in the prophecies cited, especially in chapter 36 of Tanya, how the world will be, you'll see the teacher, and will no longer need a, a garment, a veil, a shield, to um, conceal. It will all be revealed. And many, many other verses that all indicate on that re- integration, the reunifying, and how do we do it? It doesn't just happen. It happens through our work when we do me'enza in a similar way in our personal lives, in our collective lives, we create the keli, the container, that it should happen in the fullest sense of the word. And after the thousands of years of work, we are at that stage, we're ready to, God is ready to erupt and be revealed in this world in a way that everybody will see it with our physical eyes 
that will see a world that's not disconnected but connected and aligned with its purpose. Edus and Kalim, an alignment of its energy and its container. So the whole world see it as a material shell that needs to discover and recognize that this shell is, is a really a shell to the fruit and energy within, which is the divine energy within everything that exists. So that's a lesson from Chilkas in our connection, which brings us immediately a segue into the first question we're going to address, which is, Hey Rab Simon, is Hashem waiting for every Jew to become from religious, observant, and every non-Jew to accept the Sheva Mitzvah B'nai Neach, the seven Oyed laws, before he brings us the complete Geula, the complete redemption? Thanks, Matt. Okay. Very good question. I believe I've addressed it before. There are many, many different episodes, so not all of them. Um, the, uh, well, there are so many of them that I can't, I couldn't identify exactly which one I discussed this, but let's talk about it because it's a very good question. Because we have seven and a half billion people on this planet, we have Ken Yerbo over 14 and a half million Jews. So, if you have to wait till we reach everyone, and everyone becomes complete shame, and mitzvahs. And every non-Jew embraces the Shev Mitzvah that can take some time. So the Rebbe addressed this in a number of sikhs. There's a sikh in Tavshin Tazayim, where I am trying to remember which sikh it could be Yudshvat. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Where the Rebbe says, brings also a few points. Number one point there that he brings is from Tanya. In Tanya he says that when they brought a korb Minchas Selis, which was a flower offering in the Beis Amikdash, it elevated not just that flower, but all the minat semeach, the flower all over the world, everything from the world of vegetation. Why? Because it's all connected. When God created an object, something from the world of mineral world, or the vegetable world, or the animal world, they're all interconnected. Later they would multiply in large numbers. So when you elevate one, comp- one element, all the so-called, its family also gets elevated. Which tells us, that you don't necessarily have to go in every corner of the earth and elevate and refine the spark in literally every blade of grass, every fiber of existence. You elevate the general category, it elevates the entire category. You elevate some parts of it, you elevate all of it. So that's one point. Second point is that nation, generations are accumulative, as we discussed last week as well, which means we are not stand. We don't stand alone. We are midgets that stand on the shoulders of giants. That's why it's called a chain, like a shalshalus, like a shalshalus. So we're not coming only with our efforts. We're coming with all the efforts that came before us, which accumulated the billions and billions of good deeds of mitzvahs, of mitzvahs, nefesh, sacrifices, commitments. All build, all release energy into this world, spiritual energy. So we're standing today. We're not just standing and saying, "Okay, let's reach a few people." No, many, many have been reached. So the world is saturated by this at this point with that energy. So now it's just a matter of the tipping point. And once you have the tipping point, the rest will follow. So that's point number two. Point number three, as far as individuals go, most souls in this world today are a Gilgal, are a reincarnation of previous souls. When I say most, meaning Rubik and Kuli, almost all, the rare exceptions. So when you see someone that you call non-observant, or you see someone who's not yet embraced something, that doesn't mean that their neshamans is not connected to it, because it could have done it in previous generations, in previous lifetimes. Now they have to finish a certain job. So we're not just talking 
a completely clean slate. Everyone comes with a whole history behind them. And finally, and finally, being that each person has his Aveda, it could be that their good deed, there's no person on earth that has not done a good deed, whether it's a Jew or non-Jew, that good deed could be the deed that tips the scale because it's also accumulative. So to say that we have to reach every individual, Alavai we do, and we have to do our effort and do all we can to reach every individual. But there's an element that when the energy comes into play, then it affects everyone else, even those that may not be directly impacted. To use an example, there's a famous story of Beis Yosef, they say it on the Magid, that they once sent Beis Medrash to their students, a major chiddush, a major innovation in Torah. Students were very excited. They never heard it before, an unprecedented revelation. Then one of them went back home, goes into shul to Daven, and he hears a shir of relatively simple people learning. They're learning this idea, and one of the, and the ones who's teaching the shir suddenly says this idea, a person who's not even in that league. So in a sense, he got disturbed. Listen, here was a chiddush that we, who great scholars all heard from our magid for the Beis Yosef, whoever it may be. And here a simple person is saying exactly that same innovation. So, so he asked his rebbe, his teacher, and the rebbe answered, simple, that once the tzinah is open, posach ha like we say in Zayar, posach, which means a new channel opens up with an idea, it brings an energy into the world. A door has opened. And that makes it easier for anyone to access it. So the same is true in this context. The energy that we release, that we bring into the world when we refine our lives and we refine our environment, is not just affecting us, it affects everybody, even those that are not necessarily doing that act at this moment. And therefore, when you think of the cumulative energy and all the other points I made earlier, it makes total sense that no, you don't have to reach every individual. We have to do our part, and hopefully it has that ripple effect, maybe directly or indirectly, and elevates the world. And then when the gula comes, then it will activate in everybody's soul that commitment to Yiddishkeit and that commitment to the Shemitah for the non-Jewish world. And when you look at around the world today, you see a civilized world, and you see commitments that have brought, brought kindness and justice and virtue to the world, you cannot just dismiss it. Even though they're individuals, you can say, let's say, in a certain country, they're not living by it, but the country is living by it. And that country is, is, represents all its citizens. So in that sense, an impact of even of a group or individuals or a majority impacts even the, impacts even the minority. Or even if it's not a minority, as I said, it impacts the universe. So when you make the world a better place, it's a better place for everybody, even those that may not be directly participating in every good deed. In addition to the fact that, as I said, every person does have some good deeds under their belt, meaning what they've accomplished. So what does that tell us in practical terms? It tells us that when we talk about that we're on the threshold of Geula, the Rebbe saying that, and open your eyes, people say, where do we see it? You see all kinds of problems. Well, first of all, you look around, the problems compared to previous generations you can't, are completely um, over, uh, pale in comparison. That's, even that's a mild statement. Number two, there are beautiful, positive things in the world today, that, um, whether it's a civilized world, whether it's a world that lives by certain humanitarian values and rights and so on, cannot be ignored. The fact that there are problems does not take away from that collective shift. You go back 100 years, we're talking about over 150 million people were killed during the two world wars in the, 19, in the, in the 20th century. 
So though there are pockets and there's still problems, but number one, as the Rebbe says, that itself is part of the revelation because it's exposing all these issues. Is Ba'arubi Islam Na'advarim in a famous, in many sikhs, but especially Purim Tavshim Amzayim, that at the end of the Fabreng and the Rebbe explained that the things that we see that are negative are part of that when the light is shining and you're about to enter into a new state of Gula, it shines a light even on the cracks that were previously uh, un, uh, not seen and invisible. Finally, and additionally, I should say, to that, the mere fact that we are aware of it and we are doing something about it, it bothers us, is also a sign of something. There was a time where in, injustice and oppression was common. Today it's seen as not acceptable. Even though people do it, it's still seen unacceptable, and we do whatever we can to fight it. So we are in a state where we are, cumulatively has led us to a place where the world is ready for redemption. So in the Rebbe's words, what we need to do is consciously and psychologically put ourselves in that mindset, that heart set, and act on it. And not allow negative things to bring us down, but to forge ahead and to use the light. A little light dispels much darkness, especially when the darkness is only the absence of light. Based on ignorance, not based on any powerful, formidable force. It's only the absence. So psychologically and emotionally, when we align ourselves to that, that's how we push it forward and hopefully quickly reveal the Aleph, that finally the Gaula emerges in existence, in the fullest sense of the word, Gula Amitiz Bashlema. Okay. Next question. Fear. On page 139 of your book, of the new edition of your book, Toward a Meaningful Life, you write, fear of God is not actually fear at all, but an awe and respect for a higher presence in your life. Question. While I know words are probably the least effective way to communicate awe and respect, I'm sorry, while I know words are probably the least effective way to communicate, awe and respect seem to present more positive meanings. The word fear, to me, has wrapped, is wrap, has wrapped up in it a concern for reprisal of some sort, of potential punishment. Why use the word fear at all? So it's a very good question. And of course, it leads right into another question. What is, it me what is meant? Are we meant to be afraid of God? So firstly, the word fear is not used. Fear is an English word. The word yira is used. Questions, what does yira mean? So the literal translation you hear, love of God, fear of God. But immediately when you think of the word fear, what does it evoke? What, what are we afraid of? Some people are afraid of the dark, afraid of crime, afraid of um, of danger, afraid of destructive forces. Does that what it means that God is, God forbid, equated with all that? Obviously not. That's why the far better interpretation is awe, a sense of respect. And maybe the word fear shouldn't be used. The truth is, in Yira itself, Siddhis brings from, from Nigla and, and from Kabbalah that Yira has levels. Is Yira Saratsua, the fear of being punished? Is Yira Sarememus? A sense of awe of the exaltedness of the divine. Yira Sa'inish, which is similar to Yira Saratsua. There's Yira Tata and there's Yira Yilah. So there are many different levels of certain type of respect that we have for something greater than us. So it's true, there is the concept of Yira and Pachet, someone trembling before God. But that should not be confused with a demoralizing fear 
of, let's say, a criminal or danger or other fears that we have, psychological, emotional fears, real or imagined, because those fears are demoralizing and they're frightening. Here we're talking about a fear, if you're going to use that word, of something greater, like being accountable. We're afraid of being accountable. But I frankly choose the word awe and respect much over fear because fear confuses us and is associated with negative stuff. So I don't know if we should use the word fear at all, except when you're talking perhaps in the context where you say, like, for example, you need to give an accounting. So you're like afraid to do that. Why? There's a trepidation involved because you feel that you're accountable. Even there, I really wouldn't like to use the word fear because, again, it's demoralizing. The word awe may not fit there as well. So there you probably have to look for a word that's more like a, a type of humbling, where Ave is about love and running towards something you love, fear or awe is more of a standing with certain reserve, with a certain respect. Say that even though there's a celebration in Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, but it's berada, it's with a tremble, because you're standing before the king, and there's a certain tentativeness, there's even a certain feeling inside that you feel, do I deserve to be here? But that's not a fear of the fear of a criminal or the fear of destructive forces. That's a fear that belongs by sensing there's something greater than I am. That's why the word awe, respect, seems to be much more fitting. Now, I discussed this topic in the past in episodes 84 and 181, and I refer you to those episodes, which can be seen all now at a new website called chassidusapplied.com, and you just can search for these episodes, and if you go to the YouTube version of the video, it's timestamped, you can actually go to the actual topic that you're looking for. So this is a good opportunity to also point out that you have there the opportunity to write any anonymous question to us. Every question is welcome. Every question will be addressed. As well as looking at all the essays of, pre- of this year's contest and previous years. And there's a full array of resources at chassidahsupplied.com. So please take advantage. Another question now. Should I, as a female, be going to a male healer? So this is a topic we actually addressed a few um, months ago, I guess, or maybe even longer, um, episodes 248 and 249. But since more questions came in on this topic, I felt, let's address it. I'm a single girl, this person writes. I go to a chiropractor, man, who helps me tremendously. He's a healer who goes back to past experiences and tries to relive the negative feelings in a safe environment. While I'm feeling the feelings he gives me, comfortable words, etc., it's like a male therapist, basically. I feel comforted by him during the session, but I know he's a doctor, and it ends there. The fact that I'm getting validated by a man, and I'm a single woman, is that okay? There are clear boundaries that he's a doctor, and we have no other relationship. I'm just wondering, because I'm a Tzniyazdika girl, modest girl, thank you. So... If you think of a doctor as a, if you think of a therapist or a chiropractor as a doctor, yes, a doctor, of course, has the ability because he's dealing with uh, either medical or uh, related to the health and welfare of a human being, and therefore halachas like Shem and Nagiya and others don't apply there. However, you could also make the case this isn't a black and white doctor, medical doctor. This is more of a chiropractor or more of a healer, and you say it's more of a, almost like a therapist, soothing words going to previous lives, not getting into now, or past experiences, I should say. I, my mistake, it says past experience, not previous lives. 
not to go into the competence. Let's say we're talking, assuming that this healer is a competent and, and credible and legitimate and all that. Why not look for a woman? I don't know if there, I, anyone would say an issa that's prohibited for you to go see this person if they're helping you, but it could well be that just to be safe, it's maybe better to find a woman if there is a competent woman of, of comparable um, credentials and your experience is a positive one with that person. So I don't have a, there is no black and white answer to this because as I said, there is the ability to explain it in the context of a healer or a doctor. But especially since you're asking the question, which already tells me that maybe there's something bothering you and you don't want it to open up any door because there is always challenges when it comes to being personal with someone, talking about your personal life is a form of intimacy. Even with the best boundaries, maybe wise to perhaps also explore the option of a female therapist or a female chiropractor in the same vein that can do the same job. Next question on this topic, women's fabrengens. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I have a question regarding men leading fabrengens for women. It seems strange to me that men are permitted to lead fabrengens for women I have, as I have seen advertised in my community for different special days. I suppose I could understand why it's okay for men to deliver classes, shiurim, to women since it is taking place in an academic setting and there would be no shash, no concern of anything untoward. Although by the same token, it would make sense to permit women delivering shiurim to men since we do not pask in that koel be'isha erva, which means the voice of a woman is sexual, applies to a woman's speaking voice. Yet for some reason, that would be considered a breach of tzniyas for a woman to give a class to men. But not when men give classes to women. But I digress. But I do not understand why the guest speakers build at women's fabrengans are men. How can the women truly open up and sing and make achlotis resolutions and even dance if there's a man presiding? I would think that they would, they, they would feel rather inhibited and restricted. There's so many knowledgeable and inspirational women around. Why can't they run the women's fabrengans in an appropriate manner? I think it's ridiculous that the women need to hear a man fabreng. In my opinion, it's not a real fabreng, but rather a speech or sheer class. I also think that male mashpim conducting fabrengans at girls' seminaries is a serious breach of tzniyas modesty. What do you think? Thanks for your incredible broadcast. This past Yutaskislav marks three years since I started listening to My Life City Supplied. Well, I addressed this very directly, almost word-for-word word question, not exactly your question, but the same idea, in episodes 248 and 249. So firstly, I refer you to there. And there, I make it very clear that I absolutely agree with you. There's no reason for that. And it does, it could be a breach, and it definitely is, uh, not even if it's not a breach, it's not, it's, it's already going on boundaries that one should be careful. Unfortunately, there have been situations, takolas, things that came out that were not such positive things, so I totally agree. And there's an exception once in a situation where a person's coming to Fabrenga, a one-time thing, a special guest speaker for a special day. And maybe it's men and women are there. Or there's special sessions with women. But it's a one-time thing and that's something that is on a regular basis like in a, like in a seminary or school. That, as I discussed then, you find that there are precedents and it may be acceptable, but it's not regular. They're not getting to know this person. The person traveled was coming there from another place, or it's a once in a, a guest speaker that happens uh, very un, un, um, infrequently. So that may be different for the reason, the obvious reasons. So I don't need to elaborate more because I already discussed this back then in those episodes, but since these episodes, since these questions have come in, 
I thought appropriate to review them again and refer you to those episodes. Next question. How do we understand polygamy in Judaism? We know that a person's soulmate is decreed 40 days before conception. It's a Gemara. How does this teaching apply to polygamy? Can you please explain this concept? Thank you. So polygamy, of course, is um, allowed in the Torah, the ability for one man to have more than one wife. Like, for example, Shleim Melech and others. We talked before Matan Teda, like Yaakov. So there's a whole discussion whether they were bound by Aloha, whether it was the same situation. But still, the spirit of Teda, they definitely kept. They fulfilled the Teda even before it was given. Halachically, there are discussions about it, but definitely the spirit of it. So how do you make, how does it make sense? Especially when you go back to Chumash and you read, I'm just amplifying the question. Male and female created them, the human being, separated them, and then they look for each other, soulmate. How do you explain polygamy in that context? One man to one woman, who are both part of one whole, Salam Alekim. And we do find it practiced. So firstly, let's start on a very basic level. Polygamy, even though it's allowed, it was never endorsed, it was never, I should say, it was never um, considered preferable. So the cases we find are exceptions. It's not something that you find that every person practiced polygamy. Many did not, and most did not. Even when you talk about Avramovin, we took a Pelegish Hogar, that was not polygamy, it was a Pelegish. Yitzchak only had Rivka. With Yaakov, as I said there, you could say perhaps a form of polygamy. We have Shleim HaMelech and but you hear about the criticism of Shleim HaMelech, that he should not have had so many wives. And in general, there came the Chedim, Rabbeinu Gershom. Why did he make a Chedim? If it's in the spirit of Taylor to have it, so why did he make a Chedim? So it's true, there's, there are circumstances and there, there are situations, things that happened that he saw, but the, that, that, that was causing problems and jealousies and so on. But how does the Taylor condone something that can be negative? And yet that Chedim stands even till today. Even though Svadim, some Svadim do not hold by that, but generally speaking, it's not, it's frowned upon. Let's put it that way. So how do you explain the, the two sides of it? Either it should be not allowed, period. Why allow it and then frown on it? And why is it allowed in the first place? So, Apinikla, you could say that a woman, or the, the, the way a woman works and women and men work, you could talk in halachically that a woman is loyal to one man. And women can't, polygamy cannot work both ways. A woman through Kedushin, Karka Elamhu, and other things that explain how a woman is to be loyal to one man. But how do you explain it on a spiritual level? That's not the other way around. Now why should no man be loyal to one woman? So Apika Bola talks about soulmates. The idea, concept is that, like taking Yaakov, that the soulmates, each one fulfills part of the mission half of the mission, you can say, and together they fulfill the united mission that God created them in the divine image. But there are times when that mission is not enough one woman. In the case, for example, with the four Imois, you have Leah, Rachel, Bila, and Zilpah. The Shatev is Barzil. Why? Because the Aveda of Yaakov was meant to bring the 12 Shvatim into the world. 
12 Shvatim have diverse missions to cover the entire spectrum, one woman would not be enough. Even though one woman could have had technically 12 children, but it would still be in all this, the, the genes of that woman. Being that it had to be as diverse as possible, so each one of the four imohes, each one, I'm sorry, of the four wives of uh, Yaakov Avinu provided <coughs> a different type of Aveda that gave that shaver a certain strength that came from that woman. Now, why is it Dafka women split into four, so to speak? Why can Yaakov? That's a longer discussion, but generally because the mashpia is one, but the makabal, the isha, which is the recipient, can branch it into many ways. And that's why you see a woman is the one that carries the child. So the seed of the man is a singular type of force. And that determines the certain elements of the personality of the child. The woman brings a certain diversity. And that's why there is situations where it is allowed. Because what you have is a situation that one man has four different wives in this case, or in other polygamous situations, different ones. And each one, each woman brings a different part of the Aveda that would be given the mission to that to her offspring, all with that one seed of the man. So the man provides that singularity, that unifying element, and the woman provides, in this case, a certain diversity that you don't have with only one wife. But the Rabbeinu Gershon, and in general the Taylor does not see it as a positive because it's a lot of complications. In rare situations where a person like Yaakov, who was a holy man, and did not create a situation, there would be even there there were jealousies. We know the story with Reuven, and Leia and Rachel and so on. But there, because it was our Ovis Hainam Rakova, it retained a certain integrity. But as soon as you have a little lack of that integrity, there's a Yetzirah. And to have more than one wife can cause other problems. So though there is spiritually a concept of having that situation, it's considered to be an anomaly, not the natural. So that explains the idea. What needs more explanations, why is a woman different than a man in this regard? And overall, as I said, because the man is the mashpia, that's the ayr, that's mamshik, so it's one ayr. The woman diversifies and channels it, which is why there is four imayas and three avis. Four is a much more diverse approach. Three is the minimum, which is the three that necessary for something to stand upon. Like you have the three matzahs by Pesach and you have the four cups of wine. Same idea. So you talk about chachmah, which is abba. Chachmah is the nekudus abba. There you have one akuda. But Bina, which is Ema Banim Smecha, the mother, the woman, Bina is diverse. Bina is like the expansion of the river, which goes in many directions. And therefore there can be one Chachme and several levels of Bina, one spark. But then breaks down into four different, in that case it could be four, it could be more than four. But it breaks into parts, which is what Bina does. It takes the spark, the unified spark and concentrated spark of Chochmah, the conception, and develops it, fleshes it out. Takes the seed and turns it into a fetus, and the fetus develops into a full-blown child in the mother's womb. Okay, I hope that helped answer it, and um, let's go to the next question. WhatsApp. Is WhatsApp appropriate? So WhatsApp, for those that don't know what it is, as the Rebbe would say often in a Fabreng, and mentioned in the New York Times or other secular um, uh, platforms, says, if you don't know what it is, So, may you be blessed if you don't know what it is. WhatsApp is a one of the social platforms today, social media, very popular, that um, billions of people use. 
It's an easy way to communicate. Families use it and so on. So the question was ask, asking, I'm on many different WhatsApp groups. Most of them are Rebbe and Torah related. Here are my two issues with them. Number one, videos and audio, audio, audio clips of the Rebbe are so easily available and thus cheapen their value. Two, it's a major distraction. The Rebbe says we need to be like the Rajba, who would shut out everything else and give 100% attention to whatever he was doing. Famous sikh of Chav Shvat Tov Shalamid. The Rebbe spoke about Hasloch and Zman, success and time, that type of focus. So these are the two questions. Very good questions. The truth is, you can broaden the question and say all technology can cheapen things. Because once you have technology, it's so easy to use. Once upon a time, you had to struggle to find a mimer. A Mitlid Eber already writes in his introduction to, um, is it to Derech, not Derech I think Shari Tshuva. He writes, would it be? I think it's Shari Tshuva. He writes that he's publishing, the Mitlid Eber was a real publisher of my modern, of his Sfarim and Chesidus. So he writes that he's publishing, even though he knows that they value more a manuscript, a rare manuscript, because people pursue it when it's rare. And here now it's becoming published, it's easy. And yet he's doing it because today's day and age, we need to make it as easy as possible for people to study. So everyone always bemoaned the fact that as soon as the technology came into being, it made things people took for granted. Once upon a time, you had to memorize things. Then when they first created the first tablets, Thousands of years ago, some people saw that as the downfall of civilization. You won't have to struggle. And you can imagine the printing press, what that was said about. And then later, when the digital world was created, people said, that's the downfall. People won't read. So yes, there is a downside, you can say, because it's so easy and so common, and therefore people will take for granted. But there's an upside. It makes it easy to study. And as the Rebbe says about Modern technology speaks about Svarim today. He says today, the fact that there are encyclopedias and indexes and so on, yes, you could say, you know what, it makes things so easy to find. So the Rebbe says, so use that, and then, since Aruchem Eretz Midah, Tehidah is Aruchem Eretz and it's infinite, you use the extra time that you have. Now, instead of spending so much time searching because you can find it easily online or computer and so on, use the extra time to go deeper into the Tehidah. So encyclopedias have their value, but obviously encyclopedias, Encyclopedia Talmudis is not a replacement of learning Gemara and struggling with it, but it makes things easier. So that's the answer to that, that though, yes, it seems to be it could cheapen things, it's true. That's why you find that Rebbe, even especially in the early years, did not want pictures taken, he did not want recordings. He wanted Chazari, even of the Fabrengas that were recorded, because to value it, you have to appreciate it that way. But at the end of the day, there is also the other value, because you can reach many more people, who may not be ready to struggle or may not be around. So to broadcast the Rebbe, Chassidus and Teirah to all over the world today, not use technology, is not using a gift God gave us, a Koyach Adir, as the Rebbe writes, an awesome power to be able to reach millions and millions of people instantaneously with Teirah and a message of God and a warm, kind word and so on. So well, our challenge is like all comforts in this world, you could also argue 500 years ago, people struggled much more in a shtetl or in a small town. Today we have freedom. We take it for granted. So we have the Evdin Be'eretz Asher, the challenge of comfort zones, of prosperity, and the apathy it creates. So should we go back and turn the clock back and not take advantage of all the benefits and comforts that we have? No, take advantage. But then 
ignite within yourself a passion equal to the passion they had with real obstacles to overcome apathy, to overcome indifference, to overcome the comfort zone of taking for granted our lives and use that passion to go to reach greater heights. And yes, it's a challenge. It's much easier to want Mashiach when you're desperate, when you're in need, than when things are comfortable. So all these new technologies are opportunities to bring Tehid and Chassidus into much farther places that could never have been reached before. And we have to use that comfort not to take it for granted or to uh, just relax, but use passion to take it to a whole different dimension that today we have the opportunity to reach that we could never have reached. So be passionate about reaching millions of people with these technologies. As far as point number two, yes, it could be a major distraction. That's why a person has to have tremendous focus and seeing that the shirim and teira, the mitzvahs they do, the mitzvahim, their shlichas. But if that is also uh, accentuated and enhanced by technology, for example, in learning a shir, and you can learn on the phone because you don't have a safer with you, then if it's controlled by your focused attention to what you need to do, like the rajbotaka, then technology becomes another tool. It's like saying, I'm not going to use um, a, a book. The book is also technology in a way, but it makes it easier to learn. So the key thing is not to be hypnotized and not be seduced where technology controls you, but rather you control it, meaning you use it as a tool to access. If you have a question today, you don't have to go to a library. You can just search for it online. You can communicate with others. Well, there are these groups where people ask questions to each other, real data learning going on across the world. You can have thousands of people that once upon a time, you could only have those people that were living in your town, in your shul, where you have a shir. You can have actually a virtual class and fabring and a shir all over the world. So this is up to us. So bottom line is, it's all up to our free will. Do we have more challenges with these comforts? Yes, we do. But it's always up to free will, as they would say. Junk in, junk out. That's technology. If you bring, put in junk, you'll get junk. You'll get more junk. You'll, it'll accelerate the junk. If you put in good things and you come with a good attitude, technology can enhance and amplify and in many ways strengthen and intensify whatever good it is that you're doing. Okay. Let's do a few follow-ups. So last week's program, which was a special Gimel, edition, Gimel Thomas edition, elicited a lot of comments. I'm not going to read them all. Most of them were extremely beautiful comments. Um, actually, I didn't get any critique on this last episode. But they're really powerful, and I want to thank you for your kind words. Just to use one expression, he said, you really allowed me to experience Gimel, to, um, allowed me to prepare and experience Gimel Thomas in ways I never could have imagined. Instead of focusing on small things or even on the pain, really gave direction and guidance of how to use this day to turn it into something that would make the Rebbe proud. So thank you. And there are many similar sentiments that I received, and I want to thank you for those kind words. So one person I wrote, I spoke, one of the topics I spoke about was Pidya Nefesh. I spoke about, so someone writes, you mentioned call of praying at the Machpelah, Machpelah, Morsa Machpelah, when you went with the scouts. A few weeks ago we read, so it says, they arrived at Hebron, there it says, Loshin Yochid. Even though it was the 12 scouts, it says one person came to Hebron. So Rashi cites there from the Gemari in, uh, in the Seyta, Daflam Adalar Amid Beis, 34b, that it was Kalev who went off to Hebron on his own to pray, and he asked, Levakish Rachmim Allah. He asked for compassion that the, the Ovis and the, those in the Marsa Machpelah should beseech on his behalf that he shouldn't get caught up in their plot and conspiracy. 
So someone says, isn't that Pidyan Nefesh? So technically that is Pidyan Nefesh. And that may be the source of the Loshna Nola Eir Rachimim Rabim. That's the Loshna of the Gemara, some, more or less, where Kolov says, he's asking for Rachimim Alai. Basically, there should be compassion for him, which is a form of Pidyan Nefesh. So you could say the source is there. However, the Loshan Pidyan Nefesh is not actually there. So if anybody has sources where you see the word Pidyan Nefesh used for the first time, please, I'm still I'm waiting to find the source. I'll be looking around. If anybody has it, please send it to me, and I'll be, I want to share it too with the public. Okay. Another topic we'll do following up was in episode 263. We spoke about a mashpia. Rabbi Jacobson, I've worked on a project researching mashpia daily for six months and just considered perusing your material, but was overwhelmed to find the related episodes. By divine providence, just this week, meaning week 260, episode 263, you touched on Mashpia and listed which weeks mentioned it. I've learned a few things on the subject, spending an hour a day, and your videos added to it. In the future, I'll write more on the matter, but I thought to mention the emphasis that Mashpia is a relationship on Aveda, historically, regardless that it can also help physically. Lubavitch has all the pieces for full expression, and despite individuals requiring different amounts of Mesidus Nefesh, sacrifice, if all the parts of Aveda, service, tefillin, putting on tefillin, tefillin, prayer, learning, growth in mitzvahs, and mitzvahim, are there, a person has potential. Taylor, like the art, sports, and secular subjects in public schools, Lahavdil, is a medium for relationship and connection, and connection, and discussing what one is learning, asking for tips, deeper insight, or guidance, in limud, in learning, creates relationship and context. Making the rav by engaging, asay l'charav, meaning appointing a rav, you know, asay, making him your rabbi, your mentor, is by engaging the mashpi and aveda, they're not sufficiently engaged in. If they don't do mitzvahim, a makabal must talk about mitzvahim, including the aveda of those that aren't Jewish as well as they can. Obviously, toil on the matter is obligatory, sometimes taking time and sometimes proceeding quickly. She's basically putting focus on the effort that has to be invested in it. With, God, with God's help, we'll grasp how to make solid mashpiim. Mentors, I'll write in the future, I believe mashpiim in past has been profoundly difficult and misunderstood for all and is important to understand progressively as Taylor Chassidus reach further. I'll add two more points. One, a person needs to know who they are. Not every individual is biased. and needs a mashpiah. Not every individual is bribed. Every individual is biased and needs a mashpia for their negative inclinations. For example, there are different neshamas, minui melech, some have friends, family, infrastructures that guard from negative. Not sure what he means. Some need to be sure they are doing enough positive, which affects others also. There are cases that people are worried about mental health and the use of mashpia. They must know if they are doing their aveda appropriately and completely and focus conversation on this before. They need to toil more. Serious matters in emotional and mental well-being are obviously dealt with by professionals, but I think most would understand this without a mashpia. Number two, not clear of everything the person is writing, but I'm just reading it. Number two, the mifzayim bonds the community, those with education to the Jewish public, traditionally with less education. Any person can be a mashpia on another with knowledge of this context. Tefillin, Shabbos, Candle, Shefer, helping other Jews with these mitzvahs is an obviously soul of which mashpia is directly connected. Are each in each of these campaigns. The general educator education mifze, mifze, includes everything of a community 
and, and all the community needs, and there's only one of the many. It takes practice to know which mushpa receives which emphasis. In the structure, every person has their particular needs. This is appropriate mifzoyim and attitude as a mashpia based on matters of context and education, background, location, and available time. Thanks. Okay, I read it as it is, unedited, as you see, and I hope it made sense. Definitely there's certain points, and thank you for that. Another follow-up, which is in episode 264, we spoke about limited contact between Chosen and Kala. Dear Rabbi, in regards to if the Rebbe set any limits for a bride and groom to be in contact with each other during the engagement, so I'd like to cite this in complementing what you discussed. In the recent book, Asif bin Hogim van Hogis, Magal Achayim by Chazak, it's a book that gathers customs, they bring there on chapter 20, 65, page 461, the following, quote, they should not meet each other more than once a week and one more time on telephone and the least, and the less the better. End of quote. They quote in the footnote 144, Shari Shiduchim, page 205, and other sources. Keep up the great work. Best. Okay, thank you. And one more follow-up on handshaking, which was in episode 261. Just tying up some knots finishing some topics. So there, we spoke about the handshaking. So someone wrote, and you can always go back to those episodes to see the full discussion. Hi, I would like to add a comment on the topic of handshaking you discussed. I used to be embarrassed about it as well until I attended a university graduation. I would rather not disclose which country I live in, where many international female graduates of what I presume to be Islamic, but possibly another religion, also refused to shake the professor's hand on stage in front of thousands of people. They even have a procedure where you place your arm diagonally across your chest as a signal to the professor that you can't shake. As an aside, another interesting custom is that some religious students were called out as name son of name or name daughter of name instead of their last names. Now that we need other religions to make us feel proud of or less embarrassed about our own religion, but I'm sure it can help people to feel that the world, and accept, and the world accepts and respects these things, and that if other religions can be proud and stand tall, kal v'chemer can we? How much more so can we? Okay, thank you for these follow-ups. And now we'll go to the Chassidus question for this week. This is a follow-up. Someone said, last week you discussed, and you just touched upon briefly, the role of a Rebbe and a Tzaddik, that Chaz is not a form of idolatry. Because the Rebbe is a transparent channel. And you mentioned the Pesach by Yikre Loi Keila Lekei Yisrael and Yaakov Avinu. The Yatsov Shom Mizbeach, he established the Mizbeach in Pashas by Yishlach, and said, Yikre Loi Keila Lekei Yisrael. Can you please explain this concept? How can a tzaddik be called by God's name? So this, of course, follows up our discussion there. So let me begin with some sources. This question is obviously asked by the commentaries. So let's first quote Rashi. Rashi from the Mora Megilli Yudches Aleph says the following on that postic in Vayishlach, Vayikra Lekela Lekei Yisrael. Here's the language of Rashi. HaKadosh Baruch Hu Koroi LeYakov Kael. God called Yaakov Kael. God. Pirush Rashi from, as I said, Megillah 18a. So in Eir HaTera, on the postic, on the Maimer Vyatsev Mizbeach, and other Maimorim, and I'll cite them all here. The Maimorim are on that same postage, we have my modern Tofre Islam and Gimel from the Rebbe Marash. A Maimed Tofre Shmem Dalad, that is the Rebbe Marash's Maimed with Hagos from the Rebbe Rashab. 
and Tofresh Nun Vav all discuss this topic. And the language of Veira Tere says like this, that since he was a shliach, to fulfill Hashem shliach, the shliach, when he does a shliach, he's called on the name of the Mishaleach. Shluch Shalodam Shalodem, Mamish, as the Alter Rebbe says in the Kut Tere, Vayikra. The Mishaleach is the Ebeshter. The shliach is the Jew, in this case, Yaakov, doing what Hashem says. So therefore you can call him, Lachin Shapin Nikri Yaakov Kael. That's why you could say Yaakov is called Kale. There's also an, an interesting maimer, or shima, I should say, a shima from the Rebbe Rashab. It's not that known, but in Sefer Maimorim Tofresh Memvov Tofresh Nun, on page um, Reish Aindal Reish, that's 274, he has a shima on the Sefer on the Indian of Nimnam Nimnois, which means that God does not have any God limits, and addresses this issue actually. How can a human being be called God. So he says that the God, in other words, based on the question he says here, that an Apicatus, a Moscow rather, asked the Samach Tzedek, can God create another God? See, so the Rebbe Rashab says, that's the And he explains it all. He says, Misha Yevon hated. Because the Ikrim says there is a limit. But based on this, Maimon Chazal, the Rav says that someone who understands our Pichsid is this concept. Because we're not talking about, obviously, we're not talking about, God forbid, another God. We're talking about the bittle of that Shliach. Of, the, of, of in this case Yaakov is to that extent that he's no longer an entity of his own he's just an extension of the divine so these are some sources and some of the explanation on the topic of course again, we have to mention also the, in, the, 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 in, in Tanya he talks about a malach so he says in Egeresa Kedesh Simen Zayin we discusses this as well. So that explains some of the idea. Obviously, it's a very dachistic and sensitive matter. But you have to remember that we're not talking about a replacement, God forbid. We're not talking about another. We're talking about a bitle completely. So it's the godliness that shines through him that allows him to be called Kale. And this even extends to And that's why it says, Just as the Ebishter creates world, Yaakov creates worlds. Because he has the power of the Ebishter to do so. So it's all coming from Hashem, not from any other entity, God forbid. Okay. Now, as we always do, the three essays. These are all part of Essay Contest 2019, and we're going in order of the marks of all these essays. And what do we have? We have the marks of these essays, and they are um, Essay number one. Let's do the essays. Essay number one is... We'll just pick that up one second. Growth Through Trauma by Hadassah Shemtev, age 26, West Hollywood, New York. And um, she writes, We all go through traumatic experiences in our lives. From the outside, some traumas may seem more extreme than others. But all of them shatter beliefs or expectations that we have about ourselves, about others, and about the world. Perhaps you discovered that someone you deeply respected or trusted did something immoral. Perhaps you suffered a loss or someone that you loved and couldn't imagine your life without. Perhaps you were forced to move to a new city and had to leave behind everything you knew. Perhaps you had a lifelong dream that you realized would never come true. 
When these experiences come to us, our first instinct is often to blame others or ourselves. It goes on to explain the different ways we experience it. But how do we, is there a healthier way to approach trauma? Is there a way not only to recover from the experience, but turn it into a point of growth? In this essay, we will explore a unique type of personal growth that can come, only come through trauma based on the second essay from the fifth Chabad's Rebbe's famous series, Hemshech Samarvov. In this moment, the Rebbe Rashab discusses two processes of growth, and the essay goes on to explain agricultural trauma from seed to tree, intellectual trauma from arithmetic to algebra, interpersonal trauma from self to other, embracing personal trauma from self to beyond, the trauma of redemption, a birth story, and the takeaway, your personal redemption. Excellent essay, and well recommended, very creative, the language and the, and the ideas. That's essay, the first essay. Next essay, what will the neighbors think? What will the neighbors think by Rivka Cohen, age 34, Greater Manchester, England, a shlucha. She writes, we often pride ourselves as being unique individuals following our core values. But honestly, we may be surprised to find ourselves following the crowd and caring what the neighbors will say. What will my friends say? There's a natural desire to conform, to find security and validation from others. The first line of Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law, is the following. Yehud ben says, ben says, Be bold as a leopard, swift as an eagle, fleet as a deer, and strong as a lion to fulfill the wall of your Father in heaven. To be bold as a leopard means that one should not be embarrassed when confronted by scoffers. And goes on to explain, based on Teir and Chesidus, how we build that type of courage of not being affected, embarrassed in front of others. Call a spade a spade. I'm not alone. The world isn't that big. With practical exercises, a very good essay as well. And thank you. And finally, this third essay, Respectful Parenting, Discipline Through Avis Yisrael and Chesed, Yosefa Wood Eisenberg, age 29, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. There's a well-known story of the Mitla Rebbe, this writer writes, that while we, he was engrossed in learning, his child fell out of bed. He was so engaged in his learning, he did not hear the child crying, and the Rebbe then rebuked him for the fact that he did not hear the child crying. He said, no matter how lofty your involvement, you must never fail to hear the cry of a child. And the Rebbe applied it to the cry of children falling out of the cradle of their heritage. However, it is important to also take this lesson literally. And goes on to talk about it, how you apply this story, and the Rebbe's explanation of it in our lives today, in sensitivity and empathy, in parenting, basically respectful parenting, based on this principle. Excellent essay. Every parent should read this essay. Every potential parent should read this essay. So, thank you for that. And with that, we conclude this week's episode 267 of My Life Citizen Applied. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. We welcome all your questions at um, slash ask. Go to that website, you'll find plenty of resources. We also depend on your support in dedicating program or programs to a memory of a loved one or an honor of a loved one. We should only have celebrations. So please consider a sponsorship by going to meaningfullife.com sponsor or chsidisapplied.com slash donate or sponsor. Thank you. And everyone have a blessed week. A week where we elevate Kimmel Thomas to new unprecedented heights and we finally bring down the Geula Amitis Vashlema.